Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So if you're interested in a free opportunity to check in with the latest thoughts of other rehab leaders, I've got a great one for you. NetHealth has a new online rehab therapy community designed for the intersection of clinical and business sides of rehab, and it's called the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forums. It's all about habits and initiatives that juice up your attendance, revenue, workflows, documentation, compliance, efficiency, and engagement. I know, it's a lot. While allowing your provider teams to keep their eyes on the prize, your patients, and your outcomes. So I personally believe that a better connected rehab therapy profession has the power to help more people. So jump in, subscribe. It's free. So join the conversations today. You can find the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum at www.nethealth.com healthy. Now on today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dan Mills. Dan is a physical therapist who is currently serving on the board of directors of the American Physical Therapy Association. He is the owner of Performance Rehab Clinics, a multi-site PT-owned outpatient PT business in Salt Lake City. His practice focus is general orthopedics and occupational medicine. He is passionate about triathlons, skiing, fly fishing, and family, and he just completed his 10th humanitarian trip to Africa and his third Iron Man. And what are we talking about today? His humanitarian work and humanitarian work in general in the world of physical therapy. So we talk about how he became involved in humanitarian work and how you might be able to do the same, characteristics to look for in humanitarian work and in organizations, how to make a lasting impressions in the communities that you serve, meaning how can you make the, the work you do sustainable and considerations before engaging in philanthropy. So I want to thank Dan so much. This was recorded live in the exhibit hall at the private practice section meeting a few weeks ago at the Broadmoor in Colorado. So I want to thank the private practice section for allowing us to do this. And I also want to thank NetHealth for allowing us to do this live in the photo booth. That's F-O-T-O, not P-H-O-T-O. At, in the exhibit hall. So we I didn't really edit anything, so you still get that live feel. Yes, there's people behind us and things like that, but it gives you the idea that you know, you're know you there, you're with us. We had some great questions because we had an audience. So a huge thanks to Dan and to all of the people who stuck around in our audience and asked some really great questions. And everyone, enjoy. And again, this is all about humanitarian work. We thought December would be a great time to air this because we've got the holidays upon us, and it's a great time to reflect on what you have and how you can give to others. So thanks to Dan, and of course, thanks to NetHealth. Enjoy. Okay, Dan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. First time. So can you give the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do and why you're here at PPS? 
My name is Dan Mills. I'm a member of the uh, board of directors for the APTA as of June and formerly on the PPS board for about nine years. And I'm a private practitioner in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, Cottonwood Heights, which is a right at the base of the ski resorts. And I've been practicing for about 20 years. And uh, I'm excited to talk a little bit about some of the humanitarian work that I've done. Yeah, so today, uh, in about a couple of hours, Dan is part of a panel on humanitarian work and physical therapy. And so we're going to talk, we're going to cover that today in the podcast. So first question is, how did you get involved with uh, humanitarian work? So I think probably in the late 90s, I, I'd had the impression that at some point I wanted to do something to kind of give back. I, I didn't know what it was going to look like. I, I knew that I would recognize it when the opportunity presented itself. So. I started out just trying to be receptive and aware of opportunities as they came about. And the first opportunity came with a, uh, a friend of mine who'd engaged me to help teach at the physician assistant program. I was helping to, to teach some of the lectures on orthopedic evaluation to the physician assistants at the University of Utah. And the faculty member that had brought me in was putting together a, a group of students to go to the country of Ghana and West Africa. And she said, you want to tag along with a couple of the other faculty members? I said, yeah, that sounds great. And what they were doing is they were putting on a conference for all the physician assistants in the country of Ghana. And the, the, the students from the University of Utah and the faculty members were going to provide a lot of the speaking. And uh, I thought that was a great opportunity as a PT to engage in kind of a different, different uh, healthcare profession. And it was a great interaction. But in the midst of that, one of the things that I was asked to do was to, to get some lab coats that could be donated for a white coat ceremony for one of the little programs that's been fostered by the university for some time. So I reached out to a, a local faith-based charity to see if I could get them to donate them. And uh, long story short, it didn't work out exactly the way I planned, but the person that I made contact with um, didn't tell me exactly what she did, but uh, had gone to some effort to try to help me. She reached out later on and said, I'm involved with, the, with wheelchairs for this organization. I said, oh, that's interesting. So it was a little physical therapy related indirectly. And, and I said, well, that's great. And uh, then she contacted me probably a month later and said, I'd like to have you come into a group meeting. And I, I thought, well, I, I'd researched a little bit what they were doing. And I told her on the phone, I said, I don't know if me engaging much more would be necessarily a good thing. And she said, well, why? And I said, well, I said, I respect what you do. But what they were doing is they would take shipping containers of wheelchairs and then just distribute them to whoever showed up. And they were, they were hospital transport chairs, so sling seats. And that's not my primary area as an outpatient orthopedic therapist. But I knew enough to represent our profession to say, that's not very responsible, you know. And it could be done a lot better. And she said, that doesn't change anything. I really want you to be involved. And so I, I said, well, okay, I'm probably going to speak my mind. And she said, I would welcome that. And she addressed all my concerns. And as I involved myself with this meeting, I didn't realize she was putting together an advisory committee of people to be involved with this at a pretty high level. And I was the only physical therapist that was included in the conversation. She had 50 people in the room, one PT. And so I felt a little bit of a professional responsibility that if they're going to do this at a high level, um, even though I didn't feel like I was the most qualified PT, to try to engage and support what they're doing. And uh, 
that turned into helping this organization partner with two different wheelchair providers in the developing world. Um, one of them was called Motivation UK that uh, provides both um, a three-wheeled chair and a four-wheeled chair that's completely designed with bike parts and, and uh, a frame and a structure that's really built to be used in, in kind of off-road situations, but can be repaired locally in any developing country. So that was, a, that was an intriguing partnership. And then another one was out of San Francisco State University. There's a guy, um, this little, little guy in this laboratory that's hidden away at San Francisco State University. And it was serendipitous how we kind of got connected with this guy. And I'd encourage the organization, you should partner with two. You know, the business side of me is like, listen, you need to contract with two people and not just have one. So the, the short version of what happened from there was that um, they partnered with both of these organizations. And this faith-based organization had really significant financial resources to devote to this. And I said, well, I said, if you really want to do this right, what you should be doing is recognize that every, every wheelchair user deserves the right to be examined and fitted by a physical therapist. And I didn't realize at the time that, I, I mean, I, I said it fairly strongly, but she kind of, she took that moment as a, as a tipping point for them and a, and a pivot point where she committed their organization that they're going to teach physical therapists how to do evaluations. And uh, she didn't, she's not a PT and she didn't know what that looked like, but she was willing to make the commitment to do that. And uh, that resulted in the organization UK giving us 900 pages of curriculum related to teaching somebody that doesn't have a lot of background in wheelchairs everything they need to know about how to fit a wheelchair in the developing world. And it was amazing stuff. The British are thorough in my experience. And so it was, it was lengthy and huge. And um, I said, we've got to get that curriculum. And so um, in exchange for buying a lot of chairs from this organization, they gave us curriculum. And uh, then the process was, I took it from 900 pages down to something that was a little more usable and user-friendly. And then uh, they had physical therapists who would go out and teach this curriculum and would send a shipping container of wheelchairs with the curriculum. And that's what they've done today. And uh, they've now uh, provided, I think, close to 600,000 wheelchairs around the world. And I I think they're the second largest provider of wheelchairs beyond, be, behind the ICRC, the International Red Cross. That's amazing. And how long have, so how long ago was that? How long have you been, how many years has it been? That, the first conversations um, after the University of Utah were in about 2007. And okay. so it's been some time and that, you know, there's a lot that's happened in that time period. But the, the, really, the really salient points were I waited for the right opportunity, and they're willing to work with the fact that I, I had patients to see. Mm -hmm. I had other responsibilities with the association, so I could kind of pick it up and set it down. And I wasn't looking to be paid for my efforts. I haven't been paid a nickel, but they, they would pay my way to go. Um, that there's, a, there's a nice little side point. Because they started doing so many wheelchairs, the World Health Organization became aware of what they were doing and also USAID, which is the humanitarian arm of the US federal government. And the WHO, if people don't know, the WHO is actually the, the, the health and policy side of the United Nations. So, so it's really a policy-making body primarily, 
Um, but they started working with Motivation UK kind of in a bubble a little bit. And um, the, the UK version of that 900-page training involved three months of boots on the ground because, you know, the, in the UK, you take a holiday. And you would take, as a therapist, as a physio, you would take a three-month holiday and go to, you know, India to go teach people how to fit wheelchairs. I, I couldn't ask US-based therapists to do that, so we came up with a, I came up with a five-day version of that. Well, the World Health Organization, working with motivation, came up with their version of a five-day of that, and uh, I, they, they approached our organization about that and said, you know, would you guys adopt this? And it was a little funny because, you know, I was the primary editor taking that 900 pages and three months down to five days and it had typos and I'm not an editor by experience by a long shot and uh, this, the stuff the WHO presented to us was basically my stuff including some of my typos and so it was flattering and they were really worried that we weren't going to adopt it because at that point they had become such a large player it was really critical for the, the progression for them to adopt it and uh, for us to adopt it. So. Uh, we adopted it, and so now it's the World Health Organization's uh, basic wheel, wheelchair provision uh, process, and uh, I'm really proud of that because that that first interaction, asking for lab coats, resulted in WHO policy changes that have now affected what the standard is around the world for basic wheelchair provision in every country. Yeah, that's amazing, and it's such a great way to look at how to scale your humanitarian work. And now we're talking about developing world, humanitarian work in the developing world. But is there not humanitarian work that needs to happen in the United States as well? And are there ways for people to get involved, whether it be internationally or locally? And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, NetHealth. And when we come back, you'll get the answer to that question and a lot more. So stay tuned. Are you interested in a free opportunity to check in with the latest thoughts of other rehab leaders? Well, I've got one for you. There's a new online rehab therapy community designed for the intersection of the clinical and business sides of rehab. It's the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum. Catchy name, right? It's all about habits and initiatives that juice up your attendance, revenue, workflows, documentation, compliance, efficiency, and engagement while allowing your provider teams to keep their eye on the prize, their patients and outcomes. I personally believe that a better connected rehab therapy profession has the power to help more people. Jump in, subscribe, and join the conversation today. You can find the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum at www.nethealth.com healthy. Yeah, I think as you're trying to find projects that you could be involved with, there are a couple of characteristics. And this advice was given to me before I even found the University of Utah opportunity. First of all, you have to find a, a, a fixable problem, something that's simple and that you can kind of wrap your brain around. One of the problems in the developing world, and I think we find this in our communities too, when you start going down the rabbit hole of searching out problems and you're really honest with yourself about trying to see what you can do, you find a hundred things that are wrong. And there's a temptation to try to solve all of them simultaneously. And that, that, that typically doesn't work. So the first step is to find one fixable problem. Uh, the second thing is that you've got to find a local champion, somebody that's boots on the ground in the area that you can hold accountable 
that um, is going to respond to you and uh, is passionate about whatever it is that you're that you're trying to do. And if you can find a fixable problem and then you can you can find a champion, the last thing is to make sure that you can quantify and measure the results so that you can you can be able to communicate to stakeholders whether what you did mattered or not. Um, in that context, there are things being done by physical therapists in every community across the United States. And I think whether you're doing it under the guise of your organization or just as a solo practitioner, I think it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put together a, a, a clinic in a, an area that doesn't have service. You know, sometimes it's just donating a little bit of time. It may be something that's, that's maybe outside and away from physical therapy a little bit too. Uh, sometimes we think that it has to be, um, I'm going to go to Ghana and I'm going to treat patients. Um, unfortunately, that, that violates the first rule of do no, first do no harm. You know, the last thing that I've found that people need in the developing world is more Western therapists that come in and provide treatment for like five days and then are going to walk away. I have to admit that I've, I've gotten stronger about this as I've been more involved in more countries that, that those countries... Um, maybe you're better off if we don't come in those cases that what we need to do is teach people how to fish and not keep going and handing out fish i have to admit i'm i'm still conflicted about taking wheelchairs into these countries because the thing the real value i believe i bring is teaching them this basic wheelchair provision providing education and integrating it into the pt education programs in these countries so i think in your in your local community um it may be finding finding a pro bono clinic um it may be getting a, a group of therapists or partnering with a, a local school, a, a local PT school, and finding out what they'd like to do. Definitely. I've learned that students are incredibly passionate about this kind of work, um, but we have to find a way to, to reframe it so it's not always medical tourism. Um, that It's becoming more and more of a problem, and uh, the, the way that I had an experience in Sierra Leone, and I was, I was talking to uh, the leadership of WCPT about this in a call probably a month ago and it's a real concern as people just kind of blow in and blow out and trying to find ways to make it more sustainable and finding out what they need rather than us trying to impose our western view of what they need is a really really difficult thing you have to be a little circumspect about that yeah great advice now we have a couple of people here so does anyone have any questions okay well, I'm going to just pass it over to you and just say who yeah, you say who you are and where you work and the name of your practice and then ask the question. Oh gosh. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> this is Erica Mello, um, private practice owner in New York City, Velocity Physiotherapy. Dan, um, I've been interested in humanitarian work for quite some time. As a newbie to this part of physical therapy, how do you, what do you recommend that I do as a first step? Great question. That's a terrific question, Erica. Um, Finding out what people are doing in the space, I mean, one of the things that we'll cover in this session in, in another hour is uh, just what different people are doing. And you have to kind of figure out what works for your personality. You know, if it's, it's almost like, a, like your, your side hustle and humanitarian work. And we talk a lot about that where, you know, when your side hustle turns into a private practice, that's a common story here at PPS for how people started a great business. But um, that's really how it started for me was being willing and then looking for uh, the right opportunity. And it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. It started out with just, you know, teaching and uh, 
interacting with some colleagues that were passionate about humanitarian work and jumping in on that University of Utah project was a great thing. So I would say probably the first one is to find somebody that's already doing it and see if you can jump on and see how it goes. And you know, there's a scenario where if this other stuff with this other organization hadn't worked out, I probably would have gone on and off with the University of Utah to help teach at that conference in Ghana for years. And uh, But that finding somebody who you can kind of hit your wagon to, um, physical therapists are well-liked. We tend to be pretty decent in front of people. We're, we're fun and uh, we, we travel well for the most part. So a, a physical therapist on a team that hasn't had a physical therapist on it before usually ends up being a value add, even if they've never considered having a physical therapist. So poking around a little, finding different organizations that are doing that. Um, I'm amazed the number of people that are doing some form of, of this, whether it's through a professional association or through a group of friends or a practice or a faith-based organization or a civic organization. There are lots of different flavors, and you just got to figure out what it looks like for you. Nice. Does anybody else have a question? No? I know you do. I know you have one. Hi, my name is Stephanie Wyrock. I'm a physical therapist in Connecticut at Physical Therapy and Sports Medicine Centers. Dan, you know, you had mentioned how you've gone all over the world and you've implemented some of these um, implemented some of these wheelchair policies within different countries. What is your recommendation to people when they come back home to ensure that that continues? Because you did talk about medical tourism. That's something that I think is even very common for students in PT school. They go on a mission trip for a week, they come back, and not much can continue after they leave. So what's your recommendation for um, keeping track of how it's progressing and making your impact um, permanent. So that's a that's a great question, Stephanie. The the challenge is trying to provide some accountability, but also I think at a basic level, becoming a colleague to the people that you're supporting. So if you're if you're helping to train other practitioners, the ability to say, you know, um, let's keep in touch, and you have to be careful that way because sometimes. Uh, in the developing world, there are problems that we're not facing here. So it's not unusual that you may get an ask for, hey, you know, I'd love for you to sponsor me to, I've considered immigrating, or, you know, I, we, we really could use this, that, or the other. And sometimes you have to be a little selective in terms of what you're willing to provide. But at the very least, um, communicating them about professional issues and becoming a colleague at the most basic level, you can continue that long after you're gone. So. That would be the first thing. The second thing is, as you're partnering with organizations, making sure that you get to the level of like a ministry of health or um, a high-functioning hospital. Um, and in the developing world, typically a high-functioning hospital is being propped up by an NGO, a non-government organization, and sometimes multiple NGOs. And it's very hard on the outside to tell this, but you need to find out um, how well run is it and how, how financially solvent it is. and uh, if it's financially strong enough, the ability to continue to, uh, for a school to continue to support that organization is typically higher. Um, uh, and frankly, they'll, they'll look for ways to, after you've been there once, to get you back there. I mean, even under a different guise. The ability, I've heard of PT students going back three years later just by themselves to go teach at the whatever school. And 
to, you know, or teach at the whatever hospital. And they welcome that. Um, it's surprising how few people take advantage of the fact that you just, you just offer. Just say, you know, listen, I could, I could come and speak for a couple days on any topic that you want. Here's 10 things that, that I could speak on and they may pick two or three of those and provide some in-service. So it's really important to try not to be a one and done so that it becomes a little less voyeuristic. Um, and it, it's hard to break that perception. You know, you, especially if you go to a country that's, um, that's a fun country to visit, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, like Kenya, for example, everybody wants to go to Kenya because they want to, you know, go do something good and then go see the, the animals afterwards. But they don't want to go to Togo, which is run by a, a total despot. And, uh, you know, they've killed all the animals off there. And, you know, there's lots of infighting and there's tribalism and it's not pretty and it's a developing country. But that's a country that needs a lot more attention, for example. So. It, it, you have to pick where you're going to go and not based on TripAdvisor reviews where you want to take your next vacation. So, What do you mean? You can't just go there and do safari and forget about the humanitarian work? Um, so I have one last question, and that is, is there a downside? I know we talked about, aside from the sort of medical tourism, but is there a downside to the clinician to doing humanitarian work? I would say you have to be careful. It takes some balance in your life, your professional life, to make sure that you're not overextending yourself. Um, you know, I think as PTs, we typically have the Peace Corps gene and spades. And so, uh, you know, you have to make sure you keep the home fires burning. So um, don't let your, your side hustle. If your side hustle is never going to make you money, you need to be able to feed yourself. So make sure you don't sacrifice too much. And there are times and seasons. I mean, if you've got, um, your, in terms of the cycle of life cycle of your clinical life or your practice life, that it's taking more of your time, uh, or you're doing you know, an advanced degree or an advanced certification, that may not be the perfect time to, to do this. But it is, it's always a good time to start poking around and, and thinking about it. Uh, I, this, is, this is a little embarrassing, but in uh, 1996, uh, Bono, the lead singer for U2, yeah. did this. Um, we don't even need the. I, well, yeah. I don't know what the that's generational like saying, range you know, is. Madonna, you know, you that's know, right. The singer. <laughs> for our generation, it's shorthand, you know, for sure. So Bono did this article in Time magazine that I read about what he was doing in Africa. And in hindsight, what he was doing was pretty irresponsible. But at the time, it really, really affected me. That, and I said to myself, "There's no way I can do anything right now." But I, it's stuck in my head at some point when I have the time and the resources, I'm going to do it. And so make the commitment to yourself, collect the articles, develop the thoughts, talk to people, and then wait for the right time. Because if the time's not right, that's the biggest pitfall is, a, is bad timing. Um, don't be scared if, you, if you, the first foray in kind of crashes and burns or you find out something's not quite the way you'd like it to be. Um, the pitfalls can be, you know, partnering with the wrong organization and you learn as you go. And uh, if typically as, as organizations and volunteer opportunities evolve, it, it shouldn't look the same way this year that it did last year. It should be growing and evolving. 
Well, Dan, thank you so much for this talk. This was great. Where can people find more about you and some of the work that you're doing? Is there a website or what's the best way to find out about this stuff? You know, the stuff that we're doing today, uh, there, there are any number of people that uh, in our association that are doing work. I know that we have a, there's a special interest group through APTA that's, that's starting conversations about this. Um, most of the educational institutions are trying to find some version of doing mission work as some type of an elective. Um, but I, I would just encourage people to start with just the cocktail conversations and uh, just start with that as a great place to learn what's being done in your community. And, uh, and then, you know, there, there are so many solvable problems out there. There's a lot of good to be done. And uh, there's, there's, there's no limit to what you can do to make a difference. Awesome. And on that, I think, is a perfect way to end. So thank you so much for taking the time out here at, I almost said CSM, at PPS here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And thanks to Photo for letting us use their booth to record this. So, Dan, thanks so much. Thank you. And a big thank you again to our sponsor for today's episode, NetHealth. So, again, they have a great new online initiative. It's free. Anyone, if you're a rehab professional, definitely join. It is called the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum. And you can see stats and the community members already involved, plus some new polls just launched that we'd love for you to weigh in, what you can expect that will benefit you, write-ups, white papers from leading-edge performers, and there are polls, surveys, benchmarking calculators, videos, podcasts, and more. So if you want to be part of a great online community of other healthcare professionals that has the power to help more people, then jump in and subscribe. You can find the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum at www.nethealth.com healthy. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.